Dear Caro and Corrie is proudly brought to you by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 12 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806? Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corrie Perkin. Hi everybody and welcome to episode 267 of Don't Shoot the Messenger. Corey Perkin here with Caroline Wilson in what has been already, and it's only Tuesday as we record this, it has been a big week of news. Caro, we've got lots to talk about. You have a great book and a recipe. I've been binging Netflix again. We're going to discuss Stan Grant stepping down from Q&A, a very emotional episode on Monday night, and... Uh, of course, Alistair Clarkson stepping down, and more recently, Damien Hardwick, your Richmond coach. Hello, Caro. What a big night you must have had last night with that story breaking. Of Damien Hardwick quitting? Yes. Yeah. No, it's been a massive 24 hours, Corrie. And the Stan Grant story, I think, um, although this has been coming for ever since the coronation, really, I think it blindsided everyone when he wrote that first column when he talked about the lack of support he received from the ABC. Then on Monday, we had ABC, some of the biggest names and some rank and file coming out in support of Stan Grant. I mean, so many issues there. The courage of the the coverage of the coronation in the first place, Stan's decision to walk away from Q&A. His last episode of Q&A recorded also on Monday night, which had some pretty fascinating um, words at the end of the show about the media. And his view of the Australian media, which was just, you know, was pretty devastating, really. So um, plenty to talk about. Plenty to talk about. And, and I think a friend will, who someone will now refer to a friend of the podcast is going to come in and talk to us about the breaking of that massive Richmond story. We will. We'll talk about the Damien Hardwick leaving Richmond story in a moment, as Caro said. But first, can we thank our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store. Uh, Red Energy, of course, awarded Australia's most trusted energy providers by CanStar three times, not once, not twice, but three times. And of course, Prince Wine Store and Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store will be with us in a little while with the, for the cocktail cabinet. Carol, a, a little bit of correspondence. Gab from Brisbane. Dear Podstars, I hope this email finds you well. I wanted to take a moment to reach out and express my appreciation for your recent podcast episode episode 265, she says, with Caro discussing the challenges faced by Alistair Clarkson prior to his eventual resignation. Your insights and predictions regarding the immense stress he may have been under were remarkably accurate as his resignation was announced earlier this week. Your words resonated with me when you mentioned, quote, I don't know how Fagan is getting out of bed each day and ditto Clarkson, who is probably struggling even more. It's hurting everyone involved, close quote. His decision to step down, says Gab, as a coach after such a short tenure is undoubtedly a complex and deeply personal one. It's important to recognise the potential impact on an individual's mental health when faced with such high levels of stress and pressure. Alistair Clarkson's recent months, both on and off the field, has undoubtedly been a challenging one and it must have taken immense strength to navigate the demands of his role. Alistair's decision to prioritise his own well-being and step away from his coaching position is a testament to the importance of mental health and self-care. Thank you once again for sharing your perspectives and so on and so forth. Caro, that really I thought was a very thoughtful uh, and, and terrific email. Thank you, Gab, because it got you and I thinking a lot about what's happened and you and I had a discussion actually about how much we appreciated 
North Melbourne President Dr Sonia Hood's address at the North Melbourne pre-match event on Saturday, um, which was the match against the Sydney Swans and part of the Sir Doug Nichols tribute round to Indigenous players. I thought um, Dr Hood did a terrific job. She addressed uh, the issue, the elephant in the room, if you like, with compassion and clarity. Um, and she said she was, quote, genuinely worried about the state of our game and the ability of us, of all of us to have the sort of hard conversations we need to have if we are genuinely going to progress race relations in this country. And she wove it rather beautifully, I thought, and you agreed with um, with Stan Grant, what was happening, Stan Grant, Alistair Clarkson. So um, I wonder what your thoughts were on that. Well, she quoted, and Jen Watt, the CEO of North Melbourne, um, who we interviewed on 3AW before that speech, um, both talked about Stan's column where he talked about the Australian media. Um, it, they're not building bridges, they're building barriers in, ra- in the race relations sort of in the race relations space. And it, 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 it is true to a degree. I'm surprised Stan, I've got to say, didn't focus more and don't think this is because I work for the other organisation on News Limited because some of the stuff that News Corp have been writing about him and Sky News have been saying about him has been pretty extraordinary. Well, Carol, you were, you were on air last night. I watched Stan Grant's final episode f- for now. We hope he'll come back um, on Q&A last night. And he did mention the role of the media in this and we might just play a little grab. And we in the media must ask if we are truly honouring a world worth living in. Too often, we are the poison in the bloodstream of our society. I fear the media does not have the love or the language to speak to the gentle spirits of our land. I'm not walking away for a while because of racism. We get that far too often. I'm not walking away because of social media hatred. I need a break from the media. I feel like I'm part of the problem. And I need to ask myself how or if we can do it better. There's so much in there. I mean, there's so many issues here. But I think, you know, given what he's been through and what he's said and his seniority, I think we do have to take it on board, Corrie. I mean, this is a guy who I think I saw somewhere a a picture of Stan Grant 15, 20 years ago and a picture of him now and someone suggesting that his skin is darker now than it was 15, 20 years ago. I've seen comments about... Stan Grant writing about Indigenous issues from his multi-million dollar home in Bronte. I mean, it is just extraordinary some of the stuff that's been said about Stan Grant. Now, you can have your views about the ABC's coverage of the coronation and there are people internally at that organisation who think it was a stuff-up, who don't think that they should have had the sort of commentary they did at that particular time. But whatever you think about that decision, Stan was asked to do a job and he did that job. And I, you know, what he said was all 100% true. You mightn't have wanted to hear it on that particular night. And that, you know, that's your choice. But some of the vitriol and the fact that nobody did step up and defend him was pretty extraordinary. Yeah. It, well, given that it was a programming decision, it was a management decision, 
So the ABC, you and I were watching the BBC together, so we missed this, but I've spoken to friends. No, well, my, before you arrived at my house, several people in my family watching it said, we were watching the ABC and they said, look, we don't really want to see this tonight. Yes. We want to get into the coronation. Yes, I think, and I think I that, said, was, yep, the, yep, that, I mean, that was the expectation. So we turned to the people. BBC and, yeah. I, and I think a lot of people would have done that. Yeah, well, well, I didn't realise that you'd been watching before I arrived, but people, I've spoken to a couple of people since um, all of this has unfolded and they were watching the ABC and they have said, look, it probably wasn't the right forum because all they wanted to do was kind of turn it on and watch a few tiaras and a bit of pizzazz and have a bit of English history. But, but the hatred, the hatred. But I this mean, was not Stan's decision. I mean, that's what we have to no, understand. And, you know, that's and what we have to remember. It was a programming decision and probably, look, whether you think it was a good forum before the – it was it was at least an hour, a couple of hours before the coronation itself. But whether you think that was the right night, the right event or not, don't take it out on the person. Take it out on, take it out on the on – the, Take it on out the, on the person the programming to the decision. degree you say, look, I don't agree with you doing that now. But as he said, I mean, the poison's probably a good word. Some of the absolute hatred was just so ridiculous. Oh, um, the tw- I mean, my yeah, Twitter why feed, is there so oh, much hate? My Twitter That's feed, I couldn't saying. believe it. I actually stopped following. It was, it was disgusting. But there is just, if people don't know or aren't on Twitter or haven't had, had much... Um, uh, a sense of, of, of how this has been swirling around. I'd just like to quote Annette Sharp, who is a Daily Telegraph Murdoch News Limited columnist. And the story, I think this was yesterday, it might have been on the weekend, Stan Grant's long career is peppered with departures and as far back as the 90s, he admitted being somewhat vulnerable and sensitive to public criticism, writes Annette Sharp. Now that's the intro. And in amongst this perplexing and I think really damaging column, if indeed Stan Grant bothers to read it, and I hope he doesn't. And he, she says, it turns out he couldn't, but at least his grievances found a captive audience in an era of unquestioning modern wokeism, when a good celebrity bellyache can generate enough clicks to make you believe you're relevant again. And I say that spitting those words out in that tone of voice because that's how I feel Annette wrote that mean piece. And has shows absolutely no understanding of what is happening at the moment with Black Australia. This is such a significant time. As Thomas Mayo said at the Sorrento Writers' Festival a couple of weeks ago, it is about truth-telling. And Stan said that, speaking the truth, not with grievance, but just speaking the, re- the truth, yet that, has, that is not how he has been reported people are perceiving him as the angry black man. And he says, enough, because I'm not. And last night, his speech at the end of Q&A talked about love and how his culture and First Nations is built on love. Their community is built on love. And this is what the whole voice to parliament, it says, Stan, is all about extending the hand of friendship, forgiveness and love, and let's all be together. And it's quite extraordinary that even after what he's been through, somebody at News Limited can write a piece like that. It's so it, it's reminiscent of the Alan Jones, um, Andrew Bolt commentary around Adam Goods at the height of what he was going through on the footy field. It, it was so bullying and vitriolic and nasty. And particularly when, you know, white people close to Adam and who were running the Sydney Football Club were identifying what was happening to him as racially oriented. 
and yet they still made some of these comments. It, it's just extraordinary how nasty people can it be. It feels like Adam Goods all over again, doesn't it? Oh, it's just extraordinary. And, and we're talking about it in the middle of the Sir Doug Nichols two rounds of footy, Corrie. And, you know, we've mentioned Alistair Clarkson and the fact that he's, you know, walked away, the first, co- the first of two coaches in a matter of five or six days to walk away from the game because of, I suppose, mental health issues. Damien Hardwick a bit different. He's just mentally shot and clearly doesn't want to do it anymore, or certainly not for the time being, and and is suffering from some form of burnout. And then you've got Alistair Clarkson, who has really fallen to pieces over what he's been through with these allegations and not being able to um, defend himself. He hasn't, you know, the, the case, I think, will ultimately, it seems to moving be moving towards mistrial. The AFL look like they're going to disband this investigative committee that has just been sluggish and has gotten nowhere and has been unable to procure some of the documents needed for the men who've been accused to state their cases. You know, Hawthorne have all these documents where people like Alistair Clarkson and Chris Fagan can say, actually, you know, I wasn't in the room when this happened. I mean, they, whether or not you believe them, they need to answer. They have answer. to have an opportunity to, yeah. to clear their name or, some or, the, or, or put their side of the story. Some of the families involved are saying no, that for privacy issues, we don't want them released. So the mistrial will happen. I think those three men will be exonerated. I think Hawthorne will end up paying some form of penalty. I think there will, will be... Um, there'll be a situation where they will be found to have been culturally insensitive and... You know, I still believe they were ill-equipped to handle the Indigenous players they had at that footy club, to look after them properly, to care for them properly. Their welfare was not what it should have been, and that is a Hawthorne problem. Um, you know, I I love good journalism, Corrie, and I love groundbreaking journalism, but, you know, and I'll talk about this again in a moment when we talk to Tom Morris, but it is extraordinary that that ABC story ran the way it did and the damage it's done. Now, if it's all proven one day to be 100% accurate, that's fine. But I'm just not sure that... This is the Alistair Clarkson story. The Russell Jackson the Russell story Jackson, that ran yeah. on the ABC. Yeah. I'm just not... Well, it didn't really do anyone any good in the end. And I, and I think you've got two sides really hurting now. And that's interesting because you did the interview with um, Shannon and Cyril Rioli. Yeah, and a, and a lot of the situations they described um, correlated with some of the things I read in the Russell Jackson piece. So... I took it to be pretty accurate when I read about it. Obviously, I had no idea about the allegation of the termination situation, something Alistair completely denies. So, and I'm sure over the years, players have gone to clubs with family family situations and clubs have helped them or given advice. But whether well, Alistair Clarkson completely denies he did what he did, I think he he obviously thought he loved his players. He did love his players and he thought he was doing all of the right things. Whether he was or he wasn't clearly is up for question now, but he's not not equipped to coach. He might never really be able to coach ever again. I mean, it's, well, it's just the, extraordinary what's it, happened to him. Barely had the paint dried on our episode last week when we were talking about this in, 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 in sort of a thematic way. Then, in fact, he, he, um, he had that meeting with his wife, and the North Melbourne president and CEO, who incidentally um, both happen to be women as well. There must have been a particular power in that room uh, and a supportive power, I would suggest. But, Caro, what was the tipping point? Do you know or do you uh, can, can you surmise what would have been the tipping point for Alistair Clarkson? Because this investigation has been going on for a while. 
Yeah, look, I, I think he, he took the job at North Melbourne. And, and look, there were a lot of clubs could have got Alistair Clarkson and chose not to. And his last few years at Hawthorne weren't great. And he obviously had a falling out with Jeff Kennett and Justin Reeves, the two people running the club at the time. He had a terrible COVID year. Um, Hawthorne's hub was in South Australia and it was not a happy hub. And Alistair fell out with the CEO, Justin Reeves, and a lot of things went wrong. And, you know, they tried to recreate, after three flags, they tried to keep winning. He exited a lot of players and relationships were hurt, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Hawthorne didn't have good people running the club for competent people, I think, in the highest professional footy sense for quite some time. Then Jeff Kennett came back. Jeff Kennett and Alistair have always had a combative relationship. And, you know, Jeff Kennett's comments over the last week, he keeps saying Alistair's volcanic, he's volcanic, he's volcanic. I think the volcanic side of Alistair has come out in recent times, you know, with the incident with the Channel 9 journalist, which was really unfortunate, and the aftermath in that when he just wouldn't really properly apologise. Um, he's become very emotional. He became very emotional, you know, at half time in his last game that he did coach against Port, Ad Port Adelaide, but he's done that before. You know, mm. he, this is a coach who's put his fist through a wall. I mean, that's just yeah. what he's like. And we should point out too, he's taken the job with North Melbourne, but he, he was a player at North Melbourne. So there was a, a, there seemed to be a nice link there, a nice, a nice nostalgic there link. And he had his great mate and someone who's really stood up in recent weeks, in my view, Todd Viney, come to be his football boss, head of footy. And Todd's been extraordinary since before and since then. And I think will be someone who'll be great for that footy club, whatever happens with Alistair. I, I think the view is that he will come back. And I hope that in the time he takes off, he reassesses everything. And not just what happened at Hawthorne and these allegations that he's so angry about that he vehemently denies, but everything about his psyche and about the way he coaches and about the way he approaches life. Because I think that, you know, he can be a great coach again, but I think it's going to take a massive correction because of everything he's been through. That is such an interesting uh, football discussion. We have another one that's about to begin because we have lassoed into the studio Tom Morris, who broke the Damien Hardwick story. Shall we call you a friend of the pod, Tom Morris? Shall we call you that? Uh, you can call me whatever you want, but it is good to be back under different circumstances. Yes. It Hello, Cory. Hello, Cory. It's good to have you back. Certainly more different... friendly this time than yeah. last time. Well, um, congratulations, Tom. We did, uh, when we had a chat a few weeks about, ago about you coming back into the world of journalism, we all agreed that the proof would be in the pudding, that you can only really be in this profession as good as your last story. And what you probably needed to do and you acknowledged was just to keep your head down and work hard. Well, boy, have you done that this week because you broke arguably footy's biggest story of the week. And it is... Of the as, week? As we record this, it is <laughs> only Tuesday. <laughs> it is only Tuesday. Well... Well, been, it's been a big week in football and everything else, as we said earlier in the program. But, um, Tom, congratulations. And as uh, as, a, as an observer of this, of course, um, Cara will ask you um, in a moment how yep. the Damien Hardwick story unfolded for you because, of course, you and Jack Nile had a, had a piece up on the Age website um, pretty quickly last night. But, Tom, how did this unfold for you? Uh, probably like many people in the media, there was some rumblings a couple of weeks ago, that something was going on. I, I felt as if Damien Hardwick was a chance not to be at Richmond in 2024. I had no, I had no near enough information to go with. I didn't have, I didn't have a confirm from anyone. I just looked at the coaching landscape with eight coaches 
that were signed until the end of 2024. And I just thought to myself, there's no way that all these eight coaches will go into 2024 unsigned. Some will re-sign, some will resign, and some might be sacked. So soon that has to start to happen. Caro would know that in the footy season, when you reach the halfway point of the season, probably about six or seven clubs are looking ahead to next year anyway. And Richmond probably almost at this point, having only won three of 10 games. Um, So yesterday afternoon, uh, what's that, Monday afternoon, um, I got stronger wind of it and I chased it up. Um, and I had it confirmed. You're not going to tell us how the strong wind blew, are you? No, I'm not. From? I'd love to, Corey, but I can't. Um, but then um, I had a choice to make. And uh, and with reference to my past and what I'd done um, in from a professional sense in trying to break stories, I thought that what I absolutely need to do here is give Damien Hardwick and Richmond a chance to comment, um, either on or off the record. So I called Damien Hardwick at 5.07pm. I texted him as well, explaining to him I've got this story about his resignation. If he'd like to chat on or off the record, then he can give me a call back or so, text me back. Tom, you weren't asking for a confirmation. You were sure this was happening. Yes, at okay. that point. Okay. Um, and then I spoke to um, the Richmond Football Club media department as well. Um, and they, they would have loved taking that call. <laughs> well, the, yeah, the person was... They wouldn't have known, that, would they? The person that I spoke to didn't know. I, I'll t- I told this person the news. So I could see that it was quite tightly held at this point. Um, and I waited and I tried to call Damien Hardwick's manager, Paul Connors, and he didn't answer his phone. So I was continuing to try to tick every box and 5.30, 6 o'clock came around and I called Damien Hardwick again and he didn't answer. I called the Richmond media department again. There was no answer. And it was getting to the point now where I thought I've got to write something because otherwise who knows how it's going to get out elsewhere. Can you, sorry, just for the yeah. novice, can you explain deadlines? So when I covered footy, we had a deadline of the first edition. So yeah. you had to get your copy in by 7.30 no matter what. What What is your landscape look like now? I guess the deadline is fluid, isn't it, Caro? It's, There's no it, deadline. It's really just whenever you, you can get a story. you want to kind of get it before, before uh, 3.60 or, or no, footy classified on a Saturday I just or want, on a Monday night? My aim was to tick every box to make sure that no one in the story was blindsided and that it was 100% accurate. So I, I did all that. Did you go to the president? No, I didn't go to the president. I went to the media department and Damien Hardwick. And CEO? No, I didn't go to the CEO. No. Okay. All yep. right. Continue. Then I got a call back eventually when I was about to go with the story because I sent the media department a text saying, okay, I'm, I need to go with the story now. Um, as Cara would understand, it moves quickly. I don't know who else knows. And I got a call back saying, can you please wait until the players are told at 9.15 tomorrow morning? which is happening just about now as we, or just before as we speak. To time code this podcast yes. recording. That's yep. right, yep, 10 to 10 on on Tuesday. Um, and I said, no, I'm not, I'm, I can't sleep on this story. Uh, and no journalist in Australia would sleep on this story and wait for someone else to get it. So I went back to different things I'd learned over the past three or four years. Ross Lyon um, is someone I don't know at all. Curry, you know him well. But I broke a story about a month ago on St Kilda's fitness boss, quitting suddenly mid- midweek, Nick Walsh. And I called Nick Walsh. He didn't want to talk. I also called Ross Lyon and he didn't take my call, but he sent me a text saying, Tom, I've got nothing to offer, but I appreciate your rigour. That was his. That was what he said to me. And I thought that's a good thing to say from Ross. So I thought I'll do the same with I'd David Hardwick. I'd take that as a confirmation. I'd you, take that well, as a confirmation. Well, I already confirmation. had it confirmed at that point. I already yeah. had it confirmed for the media department. Um, with In the grand final week of 2021, um, I did a story about Ryan Gardner being dropped and I called the club. I gave them the heads up and I still got a call from the Western Bulldogs coach that night um, spraying me for not uh, 
for not for actually running the story. And I thought I ticked every box. So what's become apparent here in my mind is even if you are 100% accurate, even if you give the heads up, even if you give people a chance to comment, some people are still not happy. And in the end, my loyalty is to SEN, who's employing me, and to being accurate in what I write. And I think I've ticked both those boxes here. Caro, um, can, over to you. Um, Tom just said before, uh, no journalist uh, could really sit on this story for much longer. So if you were Tom, is there anything that Tom has described there in his process that you would have done differently? No, I think he he did more, in fact, <laughs> than, I, than I would have done. What would you? What, well, what, I mean, at I, what point would you have gone with the story? Well, Corrie, I, I once sat on a story, and it was a story about Wayne Carey and Anthony Stevens' wife Kelly, and wow. I I knew about it the night before. I had spoken to people involved with Anthony Stevens and also with Wayne Carey. I. I, it was about 9.30 at night when I finally had it confirmed. Um, the age deadlines, well, in my day, obviously a bit later than your day, I still could have made the second edition with that story. And somebody said to me, involved, don't worry, this isn't going to get out. You can do it in the morning. And wow. it got out the next morning. I think, oh. I think, in fact, Craig Hutchison or someone else broke the story at about 10 o'clock the next morning. And I... You know, You've been kicking yourself ever since. Well, people always often ask me when I do speeches and yeah. stuff, is there any story you really regret writing? And I said, actually, there were more that I regret not writing yeah. than I regret writing. <laughs> so I would have, I certainly would have gone to Damien Hardwick. Yeah. And I mean, I also, you know, once Tom had, I, I was pretty sure it was correct by the time Tom had broken it on SEN and we were just fin- finalising our production for Footy Classified when it broke. But obviously, um, and I, I don't sort of work full time at the age, but the age managing editor of sport, Chloe Salto, rang me and said, is, is it correct? And by that time, I knew it was correct. Now, the age has got a lot more rigorous than the old days because of legal issues, et cetera, et cetera. And there was no way, for example, the age would have run that Russell Jackson story about the Hawthorne situation yeah. with the amount of rigour. And I'm not saying he didn't do the right things. I'm not making any comment on that. You're commenting on the news They would never have run it. Yep, yep. So Chloe said, look, can you tell me if you've got multiple sources for this story? And I said, no, I can't. I can tell you I've got one source and it's absolutely right. Yeah. And the source wasn't Tom. It was obviously someone at the club. And so, and, and so, what time was this? Because you you went on uh, you went on air. In fact, you texted me to say I've got your dress on. Yeah, that was. <laughs> channel, I didn't, channel, I didn't, I didn't know channel at that nine point. So that was that was ten to seven. Channel nine. Uh, Tony channel nine Jones years. said there's um something going on at Carlton, and I said there's massive issues going on at a few clubs, Tony. And he texted me later and said, did you know about Richmond when you said that? I said, no, I didn't. So what point, so are you in the makeup chair when you hear about Tom's story? No, I was, um, I was just finalising um, the Caro's Arrow as it happens. And our boss came in and said, Tom's just broken this story. So I came out and we're watching on the couch on Fox footy and they're interviewing Nathan Broad, the <laughs> Richmond defender. And the interview just seemed to be going on and on and on. And nobody is mentioning Damien Hardwick. Yeah. And we're just thinking, I, I said to someone, this must be a pre-record. And this person said, no, no, they never pre-record. They do sometimes pre-record the interviews. I don't know if that was a pre-record. Uh, it must have must been. Must have been. Because he was even asked and, yes. you know, the coach, does he still have the fire <laughs> yeah, in his yeah, belly? Yeah. And Nathan answered the question. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just say as well about missing stories? I've missed many stories because I've waited. So I missed a story to Sam McClure a few years ago about Dan Hanabry going to the Saints. I missed a story about Sam Mitchell saying no to Collingwood, which set in motion the whole Alistair Clarkson fiasco at the Hawks because I waited because I thought I need to do this on air or I need to do it on this platform. And I think waiting two and a half hours 
expect for Damien Hardwick or Richmond to give comment is well, longer than I would have done sensible. a year or two ago. Yeah, but so, so long as you can live with yourself, you know, so long as but you feel... But what's he got to live with? I mean, well, he's well, done no, nothing well, wrong. Well, no, but, in, but, 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 but ethically, you know, I mean, we're, all, we're always told you've got to go and... Well, you've had it confirmed. You yeah. said to me you, it, was a, it had already been confirmed. But he's he's yeah. gone so to everyone a, he needed to go to. You're asking for a comment. Yes, I, I yeah. know. And I'm not saying he didn't do it. No. But I said, but so long as a journalist... I'm speaking generally now. Yeah. So long as a journalist can look at themselves in the mirror and say, I gave that fair time for the people involved to get back to me. Yes. The danger is with people who are less experienced or just gung-ho yeah. is when they jump too early and it's either wrong or partially wrong yeah. or if it's a really sensitive piece of information, the person who is the victim here or, or the person who is the subject hasn't been given a heads up. I've to done that too. I've jumped too early and got it wrong. Have you? Yeah. And, and that's terrible too. But but I, in this situation, I would say that talking to, and I was taking calls during the show because we recorded a little bit later than normal, maybe about 8.40. We started recording. We normally start about 8.20. And by then there wasn't really much else we could do. Richmond so I to th- clarify that you pre-record, but you record the whole show in its entirety. Yes. You don't. You don't actually As stop live. and start. Sometimes yeah. we go live, yeah, yeah, and yeah. We, we had we hoped to get more last night. We would have gone live, but we didn't think we needed to. We brought the show. It was it was going on at ten thirty. They we ended up going at ten, and I think what. Well, obviously, we confirmed the story. I got as much as I could get from my sources. The, the the biggest story is what happens around the football landscape, and that is huge, which we've discussed. But I think the other the other thing was that wiser Richmond people were saying to me during the show that nobody, for a moment, thought that expected Tom to sit on that story overnight, and Good. that if you've got a story like that. You have to go with it. They were hoping Damien could get to a few more players because he was ringing the players, and it didn't come. I've got to say, it was a big surprise, but not the biggest shock of all time to some of the players. Yeah. And the other thing is, Tom, they were pretty shocked. I text one person who said, I can't believe you've got this story. How have you got this story? And I said, well, I actually haven't. It's just been <laughs> reported on SEN. And they couldn't believe really? it. Really? Yeah. They couldn't believe um, it had got out. Tom, I want to come back to you in a second, but just, yep. Caro, you just just to finish how your Monday night unfolded, when did you get together with Jake Nile and write that? Were you just filing random observation paragraphs about the club? And I what haven't you spoken knew? to Jake since we so did the just, Age <laughs> podcast on Monday morning. <laughs> so you just filed it and the, and the, and the copy editor I just editor told them everything together. I knew. Okay. I, I managed to, I, I was told, that Andrew McWalder was going to be coaching as interim coach. Couldn't quite – I that last night the view was that Damien was stepping away immediately. Yeah, that's the same as me. I wasn't 100% sure on that. So without being 100% sure on whether he was going to coach this weekend or not, I thought it's not worth the risk. I'll step back and say it's unclear what's going to happen because the real story is that he's quitting, whether it's this week or next week. Yes, and, um, and you know, th- then, th- then there's all the observations. There's two distinct observations. He's – let the club down in a terrible way or he's absolutely done the right thing. If you want to get out, go now. Go when you no longer have the hunger and be honest enough mm. to say so. Mm. And all the blokes and, and some women in the pub will be discussing that for the next week. Mm. That's a big issue. Tom, um, you had time away from the game and we've interviewed you about the reasons why and your reflections on that time and what you learned, uh, as, a, as I now would describe it, on the interchange bench. Yep. Uh, Journalists sometimes when they leave the profession, either through an unfortunate circumstance or illness or whatever, such as you've been through, or it might be that they take another job in communications and then they come back again, they often find that they are better journalists, that they yeah. have learnt a few things, that their empathy has has 
or, or their greater awareness of the outer world has created um, something inside them that makes them a better journo. Yep. Do you feel that, breaking that story yesterday? I'm not sure whether I'm a better journalist than I was before, but I certainly feel like I'm a better person than I was before because I've got a wider perspective and more gratitude for the position and the um, the roles that I've been given. As I, as I told you a couple of months ago, I was no certainty to be a journalist ever again, and I'm still no certainty to be a full-time journalist ever again. Just because I've broken this story, it doesn't mean that everything's going to open up and everything will be okay. So um, I don't know whether being away from the game allowed me to break this story. I don't think it probably did, but it certainly allowed me to be more balanced and level in the aftermath and not get too high in my highs and equally hopefully not get too low in my lows as well. Um, one thing uh, someone close to me did say last night, they did say, just stay grounded because there's no doubt that after the Luke Beveridge press conference, I, I wasn't grounded. I was on my phone till 2 or 3 a.m. talking to people. But I, I was I was living this adrenaline rush. So I haven't allowed myself to do that this time. Even though it is um, a thrill to break a story, it's not um, – it doesn't define me as a person. That's right. It's not about you. No. It's the story that you broke. That's right. It, and and that's what I find a little bit uncomfortable, mm. that the story has become – no, the story is Damien Hardwick, but the offshoot from the story, according to SEN callers and social media and, and, and other people, is um, how how I've got the story. It's about me, and I, I don't feel comfortable with that, whether it's me or Caro or Sam Edmund. The story is about Damien Hardwick and Richmond, and I've said that to a few people, and I, I honestly believe that. Well, Tom, I'm glad you walked past our studio and we were able to drag you in for this chat. It's been most interesting. (laughs) Hey, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Corey, and thanks for having me, Caro. Congratulations. Good yarn. Thank you. Here comes Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store, hanging off the trolley once again for the cocktail cabinet. Miles, what have you bought in on your trolley today? Uh, I have some... Good cellaring wines. Oh, yes, this was in relation to Carol. So, Carol, when we were mm. off air last week, you asked Miles, could he help you with a favour? Would you like to tell everybody what that favour was? Well, yes, because, and I think that uh, my son, my son's godfather, who is well known to you, um, gave Ned a bottle of red wine every year up until his 21st birthday, I think. And the bottle was obviously something, well, by the time he was 18, it didn't have to be able to sit for that long. But, you know, wine, wines that yeah, wines that you can sell her. And I did the same for one of my godsons. And my daughter is doing the same for one of her godsons. And it's really interesting going into a wine shop and talking to winemakers about the sort of red, and it's obviously usually going to be a red wine. Generally speaking. That yeah. you're going to buy someone that is going to be able to, and it's a really interesting exercise. And the the price range is usually between 50 and $100. Some godparents, maybe more, maybe 150 But I'd love to hear some recommendations from you. Yeah, so I think we were sticking to that sort of 60 to sort of 80 price point. Yep. Which I think there's a bunch of things around there. So I think there's a few classics, you know, Shiraz, and Cabernet, as far as reds are concerned, certainly Pinot can age very well too. But I think, um, you know, Shiraz and Cabernet is a pretty safe bet if, if you're sort of looking for something like that. Um, depends how, what, you know, how much time you get out of something like this and how well it's stored. There's always a, there's always a bunch of factors that you have to consider. So perfectly stored wine, you know, you're probably going to get a few more years out of it than something that's just going to sit in someone's, you know, hot, hot. Tin shed. Yeah, tin shed. <laughs> Hot under under the stair, a cupboard or whatever it might be. 
So those are always important factors. But I, I picked a Shiraz and a Cabernet today because I thought that would be perfect. And the two things we've tried recently that we were like really sort of impressed with, and I think you could drink them young, but you could definitely age them as well. They'd be great. So what have we got? So I've got uh, the Hamel, Best Hamel Shiraz. This is really new from them. It's uh, So everyone knows Best from, well, probably we us wine lovers know Best Victoria, one of really sort of icon Victorian wineries and obviously Australian wineries as well. Um, this is a, a, a single vineyard Shiraz. It's actually, I think it's off a single block. They used to buy this fruit from this vineyard, which they always loved, and it went into their top wine, Best Bino. They finally sort of got a hold of this vineyard themselves. And so now they own it and they, this one block always sort of stood out. I'm, I'm pretty sure it's a single block out of here. And so now they've just started bottling this block separately. We tried it in a lineup of best about a week ago and it just, they're all fantastic wines. Absolutely. And we just thought this really stood out. It was, it was so sort of had all that best kind of slinky tannins and that lovely kind of like, you know, dark sort of creme de mure fruit that you sort of get from out that sort of Grampian's Don't way. Don't love his way with words? Slinky sort of, tannin. I was practising on the of, way in. I'm munching. I'm like I'm, I'm, like I'm eating Slinky it. Yeah. Tannins. Slinky tannins. Slinky tannins. You were practising in the car on the bike, were you? I was, I was practising on the walk down. Were you? A Dennis oh, Committee of Wine Critiques. <laughs> no, but it's just, it's, it, it, it was really, it, it really stood out from the whole range. It had all that best thing going on, but it was like really kind of unique as well. So I, we, I we just thought it was very cool. This is, a, this is a really crazy thing to say. It's a bit like a bookseller saying, yes, we do sell a lot of books because of our covers. I buy sure. I buy a lot of wines based on their labels, which sure. I know is pretty tragic. I've never been a huge fan of Best's label. I always feel it's quite macho. Yeah, it's quite a, ma- it's quite a male. It feels like a male um, brand. Yes, some of these wineries, particularly these really iconic things, and and Wins is a really good sort of example of it. They've been very careful to keep particularly that Wins bottle, that that sort of. I think I've talked about it before. That picture of the very traditional of the winery, very yeah. traditional, and they. They will not remove it from their labels. Like it's kind of like a hard and fast rule for wins because it's so iconic for them Interesting. that everyone knows what it looks like. And it's sort of my understanding talking to them is just like that'll never move off those labels because mm. everyone knows what it looks like. Mm. And I think best is probably one of those things too. It's such a kind of iconic looking sort of label that it'll probably never change. So Maybe it's there's... just because men men <laughs> men arrive at our place with a big heavy Shiraz and it usually has a best label on it. And sure. And the generous of them. And you know in the history and it's quite got a long long history in, in wine yeah. in Australia, which is probably you but know, Cara, they have reasonable the time, they have so. reasonable price Shirazes as well. Yes. You know yes. it's not so, just this top yeah, shelf. Yeah the bin the bin one is phenomenal and it's like thirty bucks. And how much is this one? So this is sixty eight dollars Brilliant. So really fantastic. And and then the other one I'm going to do is the Mosswood Ribbon Vale Cabernet Sauvignon. Well, it's actually a Cabernet blend. It's a, based on a Bordeaux blend. So Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, Cabernet Franc, uh, and I think Petit Verdot and Malbec in there as well. So very similar to the top Mosswood wine, which is like a couple of hundred dollars a bottle. The Ribbon Vale is a different property, I think, in Willie Abrup. So slightly different sort of profile on it. But it's got this, uh, it's just that really sort of classic, you know, West Coast, classic sort of looking Cabernet blend, has all that lovely like luscious fruit, but quite structured and that structure, that tannin that you get from the grapes, from those varietals, that's what's kind of going to give it some of its longevity. And so if you, this latest vintage we thought looked fantastic too, we saw it a couple of weeks ago and same thing, just it's like the perfect wine to age. I think you'd get 
10 years out of both, probably pretty happily if, the, if you stored them well. I think certainly the Cabernet, you'd pro- probably push it out to 15. And even the Hamel would be interesting to look at after 15, 20 years. Gosh, but, what, what you know, that's a long the, God, t- the Godchild's two. It's <laughs> <laughs> a long time for a wine, though, I just want to say. You know, if, and, and if, how if, mu- for how any much wine is... to go 20 years is... is is, it's pretty is, unusual. Yeah, so top-end Bordeaux and top-end Burgundy and things like that. But I think at this level, you'd be very happy with these wines at 10 years. And how much is the Mosswood Ribbon Vale? Uh, so that is, uh, uh, I think it's priced at, um, I think, se- about $75, $78. Okay, yeah. so... So Mar- really reasonable too. So Miles recommends the Mosswood Ribbon Vale Cab Blend. Sounds like it has everything but the yeah. kitchen sink. I think in they it. say Mosswood. Uh, I think they say Rivervale Cabernet, but I think it's got a bit of everything in it. And mm-hmm. and the best Hamel Shiraz at sixty eight dollars. And of course, if you are receiving this for your godchild, you'll have to make sure that you have a house with perfectly cellar <laughs> condition, perfect cellar it conditions. It helps. Which actually, if you're the parents of young children, there's a chance that you might not even have your own home. It's and, quite challenging. And maybe <laughs> open true. one on their sixteenth. You know, just for for them to have a taste. Absolutely. <laughs> we all, we no, all I know. would never and recommend that. The, we all know it's not. We know, all know it's not all just for them. Well, that's true. It's for everyone to enjoy. Miles, the whole family. <laughs> thank you. And of course, we can um, we you. can find these wines on princewinestore.com.au. And what's the promo code again? So M E W S when you're uh, checking out, and you get ten percent off the wines Ma- in your cart. Miles, when um, my son Ned was born, we met up with Corrie and her then husband, who were the godparents to Ned, and they walked into one of our favourite local Lebanese or Greek restaurants, I think it was. And handed over this bottle of red, and Brendan said, "Oh, thank you very much." And we ordered and put it under the table and got out something he'd brought along. And you two said, "Actually, I think we should open the one we bought." <laughs> it was a bottle of Grange. It was, it was a, a Grange. And Brendan just hadn't even looked at it, and Stuart was looking a bit miffed, and Corrie was looking a bit embarrassed. Oh my god! Brendan goes, "Oh, oh!" So anyway. That wow, was a that's very, very generous. I must lovely. say, I must say, a Grange lovely. is a really good if you can afford it. If you, that was a very generous present. But, by you well, too. I'm not saying it for that reason, Caro. But, um, but a Grange because it sells so well, and and yeah. it has and it has the dignity, doesn't it? And, and speaking of brands, it has such perfect brand awareness. Yeah, that's. I think with these, you know, with Best and and with with Mosswood and. And um, you know Penfolds and, and their great the Grange range and that sort of thing. You know they have a history that you can track of of you know quality and obviously ability to sell her as well. Like they have a track record, which is like Bordeaux is so famous for these wines that sell her because they have a track record of you know fifty, a hundred, a hundred and fifty. You know they've you can you can sort of track the cellaring progress of a lot of these wines. Um, and, you know, they, they do very well. And so I think they're always good options. If you are looking to sell a wine, you know, go for some of these, you know, good track record wineries. You're probably guaranteed to get some solid time out of them. Fantastic. Miles Thompson from Prince Wine Store, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Caro, time for BSF and you have a book. The Christie Affair by Nina de Gramont. <laughs> Gramont, I think you pronounced it. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm not laughing, laughing at, at my no, terrible French. I, no, I'm laughing at the book cover that you sent me via text. Well, you thought it was, was a trashy romance. It looked like Mills and Boone. Well, Corrie, I mean, even if it was, there's nothing wrong with Mills and Boone, but it's not Mills and Boone. It is um, a story, a reimagined story of that very famous 11 days when Agatha Christie disappeared. 
Now, you know this story well. I mean, I think they've made movies out of it. It's been written about before. Agatha Christie actually went to her grave, never ha- never revealing exactly what happened when she disappeared after her unfaithful husband um, told her he was leaving her. And what this book is about is about the other woman. It's um, Look, it's fascinating, really. So um, it's complete fiction. Well, it's not complete fiction because... Agatha, I mean, it, it, it's told through a lens of the time, which is in the 1920s, when Agatha Christie was already a quite successful writer, but nowhere near the famous writer she became, deeply in love with her husband. And this is a man who she was suspecting of having had many affairs, but didn't really want, you know, she didn't want to break up with her husband. Now, the, the story, it, it's actually much more a story about, as I said, the other woman. And, and it opens with um, Once I Tried to Kill a Woman. That, that's the way the story opens. And it opens with um, the um, narrator's last meeting with Agatha Christie before her husband tells Agatha that he's leaving her, a scene in Agatha's house that the husband describes to his lover but then she reimagined what really happens. Um, the, the so we have an imagined, like she's a real person, but where the, the fictional character is the lover, yes. even though she existed, and we're imagining what she imagines happens in the room. Yeah, but an also, event that we're not sure that happened. But mm. also, but also, um, are you with us, Jane? The story of it's a story of Nan and Nan's character. So Nan's the mistress. Yes, and Nan actually, you, you find out um, her name is Nan O'Day. She comes from a, a very sort of interesting family and she has a great tragedy in her past. And it's really about the events that lead up to her affair with Archie. Did she stay with Archie? Well, you've okay, got, got to read the book. You, you've got to read the book. I mean, it, it, it's, it, it's an extraordinary story. And um, what happened, I mean, if you remember, Agatha Christie disappeared. She disappeared one night and no one found her for 11 days and she turned up in a hotel in Harrogate. I think the hotel might have been called Harrogate, and it turned out she'd made some friends there. And everyone has a theory about she'd been playing bridge for eleven days. Well, um, that would be nice actually, because she was having a tough time at the time. But everyone has theories about what happened. But it's quite interesting to actually read this reimagined story. It's a great mystery. It's a great narrative. If anything, you probably want a bit more about Agatha. You get a lot more about Nan and what happened in Nan's life. And, you know, and Agatha's absolute love for Archie, I mean, very early in the book, she says to Nan, I know you don't love him and I do love him, so please let me have him. Oh. But there are reasons why Nan can't do that. Oh. And it's, it, look, it, it's... I've, Nan sounds like a bit of a Nan nasty. I've, I've always been interested in Agatha Christie's life and I always found that I know, story I know. Her. And I've, I have that wonderful bio at home of her. Yes. Yeah. Which, 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 which actually investigates the disappearance, mm. but again, there's only really theories and a, and a few twines from people she met late in that experience in the hotel. So I would recommend The Christie Affair. I think it's a really good rollicking read. But don't judge a book by its cover, unlike a wine label, as well, we Corey discussed said, earlier. oh, a romance, <laughs> question mark. A romance. Well, yeah, there's a lot, it's a lot more than a romance. Now, you and I have both watched Queen Charlotte on Netflix. Have I'm, you done the full six episodes? I've yet? finished it. I finished the last one on Sunday. Okay, we can both feed into this. So this is Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story on Netflix, and it's part of the Bridgerton series. It's the third in the series. 
If you haven't been watching it, may I suggest you start with series one. But this is actually a prequel, but I think it's important that you see series one and two before you see this. Um, It is the backstory of Queen Charlotte, who, of course, is a significant character in Bridgerton 1 and 2, real-life character, was married to George III, pardon me, who became king at quite a young age. But uh, he had um, had a, a mental disorder and he subsequently, I mean, it's interesting how this suggests in this story, Caro, uh, was it um, was it exacerbated by the responsibilities that came with being a monarch at such a young age? The was treatment he, was he of the, the right grandfather. Per- the, the treatment of the grandfather, the, the, the price that he had to pay to lose his privacy, all he really wanted to be was a farmer and um, and to what extent his overbearing mother had an impact on his mental health and well-being. Is but this anyway. the same King George, the movie The Madness of yes, King George? that's right. Yeah, obviously, but a reimagined That's right. And, and King George lived for a long time. <clears throat> he wasn't seen for many years and he outlived his wife, actually, Queen Charlotte, by a few years, but he lived for many years. But in uh, Bridgerton 1 and 2, one of the uh, most compelling characters is Queen Charlotte because, of course, it's a story about social mores and family and uh, and matchmaking, really. It's a kind of a pride and prejudice on speed. Everybody's being matchmade. But Queen Charlotte... With is a lot got, more sex. Yes, correct. <laughs> uh, but, there, but Queen Charlotte oversees these rituals and these presentations to court. And if Queen Charlotte comes to your um, event, your party, then suddenly you go up in the social pecking order. Lady Whistledown once again narrates the voice of Judy at Julie Andrews, but she has a lesser role here because this Bridgerton story is in two parts. One is, if you like, current times, which is where we are with Queen Charlotte as a middle-aged woman who's, who hardly sees her husband and has a group of girlfriends, um, um, female friends. And, uh, and then we go back in time to when Princess Charlotte, Queen Charlotte was 17 and she was, uh, she was from Germany in an arranged marriage with George III, who, of course, was a Hanover and his family came from Germany. So it kind of made sense. And she was a Moor. Well, that's the suggestion. We never know that. But it was suggested that she was part of what's called the Great Experiment. Now, Shonda, Shonda Rhimes, who is the creator of Bridgerton, the Bridgerton series is based on a series of novels, but Shonda Rhimes is a very successful American um, television producer and screenwriter um, among her um, many, many uh, um, accomplishments is um, Grey's Anatomy, which is still running private practice and so on. But what she's done is she's an African-American and Shonda has looked at this through the perspective of, um, first of all, you never see anybody of colour in any period drama ever. Like, where were these characters? And in fact, as we know, just prior to the Enlightenment, there was all of this curiosity as as the British Empire spread throughout the world. There was this curiosity about people who were seen as exotic. And many of them were encouraged to come back to um, England. And London society, in fact, for a brief time, did welcome them in. So Shonda has imagined in her script, what if Queen Charlotte was um, was a woman of colour? And what if the court became a court of colour? And that's what, that's what makes this, I think, so interesting. Also interesting, Carol, I loved just watching um, Charlotte's responses to George's um, growing mental decline, if you like. 
I thought they were really tender and beautiful scenes. Scary but beautiful, you know, just and the, the way love. They, and the I way was they, so in love. The way they reenact, like yeah. you see them meet and you see one George and then you see what really happens behind the scenes and, and, and all the issues he faced up leading up until that first meeting when he sees her climbing over a wall just before they're about to get married. And, um, and you realise what's happened. Because you know, I said to you, what's going on? Like, why won't he go and spend the night with her? What's going on here? And then obviously... Piece by piece. Yeah. It, it was, yeah, it's very well acted, actually. It's really well acted. And I found that I had enormous empathy for George. And I think we do when we know somebody who's suffering from some kind of um, mental stress um, and, has, and has mental health issues, that it's complicated. And there are lots of triggers so yeah. it's a really it and, is and the really treatment, well the barbaric treatment that went on back in the day. Whether you know, I mean, how much is true, I don't know. But it, I would say, you know, Bridgerton was a bit of a romp the first two series, but this was a more mature production. Mm, a lot of depth in it. It and, is, and you learn obviously about all the other characters too. Yes, and what the backstories? Yeah, the backstories of all of them, which is the, the Bridgerton family themselves, um, the other main characters in. In Queen Charlotte's Court, extraordinary. Yeah. I was I was chatting with my daughter Coco, who was watching it around the same time on the weekend, the last episode as I was, and that fi- there's a final scene when um, oh, Charlotte now, so as the moving, older lady, visits George, who is um, really kind of locked away, I guess. Who you Q. haven't seen? For... Yeah, he's been locked away at Kew Palace, and she connects with him through something in the past that they used to do together when he was and and. And the tenderness, because he grabs her hand and he's old George himself again. They had 15 children and uh, they were deeply in love. Which is another big part of the story. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Those children. Well, that's right. That's, yeah. And, and, and the speculation of, you know, why have none of, why have that none of them produced legitimate heirs, as Lady Whistledown reminds us. But anyway, I think it's really good. Um, Queen Charlotte, a Bridgerton story on Netflix. Um, and I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad you liked it too. Yeah, I wasn't going, I was determined not to. And then actually, as I said, I thought it was a much more mature production than the last two. And I thought the young Queen Charlotte was absolutely brilliant. She's a fantastic actress. As was the young George. And the, and the side story of the two courtiers, the gay courtiers and their love story was just, oh, that was really sad as well and beautiful. Yeah, it is. Absolutely it's a beautiful, beautiful. beautiful. Highly recommend. So what's on the uh, what's on the kitchen table tonight? What are we well, eating? Sort of unusual for me. I've gone slightly sort of Asian and um, a perfect Sunday night meal that I confess. Um, Clem and I were pouring through the um, new gourmet traveller and, you know, they have that quick midweek meal section and you always got, they always look fantastic, but they always look slightly more complicated mm. than you maybe would do. And you had to find tofu. <laughs> we had to find tofu, which, well, that wasn't too hard, actually. i tell you what was harder, the mustard greens. We ended up um, swapping them with um, bok choy. Do you know where you find mustard greens, Miss Jane? Victoria Street at any of the Asian grocers. Good suggestion. But you could use rocket, I reckon. Yeah. They're peppery. Yes. Mm. Yeah, Close, closer, closer to home. What about the Asian shop at the Paran Market for you? No, 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 no dice, no dice. Anyway, I'm with Jane. Off to, um, off to Victoria Street. Now, don't balk at this, everyone. It was so beautiful on Sunday night, and it was really good for leftovers on Monday. Stir fried udon, mustard greens, tofu, and peanut sauce. Now, the peanut sauce, what we ended up doing there was 
substituting a mixture of peanut butter, soy, and a couple of other things. But you don't need too much. Sesame oil, I think most people have that in the cupboard. Two spring onions, well, most people have that left in their fridge. Ginger, garlic, aforementioned mustard greens, stalks removed and leaves coarsely chopped. Two portions of Japanese udon noodles, easy to find. And a mixture of mushrooms. We used um, shiitake and oyster mushrooms. This recipe suggests woodier mushrooms. We couldn't find them, but we used oyster ones instead. And then satay-flavoured tofu sliced and two tablespoons each of exo sauce, mushroom, and Jimmy's satay sauce. Well, we use peanut butter. What's exo sauce? Exo sauce is a very expensive and specific Asian sauce that you'll find in any Asian grocer. And this is the mushroom-flavoured one. It was very expensive, but it was absolutely beautiful. Look, the recipe's pretty simple. It'll be on our show notes. You basically cook it all up in a wok. It is absolutely yum. Clem decided to bake the tofu. And so with the crunch on the tofu, did Clem put a bit of oil on that before she put it in the oven? She did, and baked it and put a few um, black sesame seeds oh, on top. fantastic. What it was absolutely idea. beautiful, very tasty, perfect Sunday night meal. That's BSF for Red Energy, powered by Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806? Now, Caro, I know you have a very bad cold this week and that's probably making you grumpy, but is there anything else that's making you grumpy? Well, it's connected to that. I went to have a flu vaccination last week. Every time I have a flu vaccination, I seem to get sick. I've had This is the third one I've ever had. And because I'm going away on a short trip, I thought I'll have my fifth COVID jab. And a few people said, whatever you do, you shouldn't have them both together on the same day. But other people said, including Anna from the op shop, don't be ridiculous, have them both. You need to have them both. My GP said it was fine. I had two jabs. I have I just I've got sicker and sicker with every day that's gone on, Corrie, and that is making me very grumpy. Every time I have a jab of some sort, and everyone says, Look, you might get a mild case of it. I know this is a really boring complaint. But I just didn't need it this no, week. No, it's not boring at all. It's it, it it's it, it's it's why I live in fear of the flu jab because everybody I know who's ever had the flu jab gets terribly sick. My mother, before she died, had the flu jab, and um, I'll I'll never forget. It was probably her last winter. She was so sick. I was so worried about her. Well, I, I might admit. I might add that the. 30 B&H extra mild each day. <laughs> no, that's not something I partake of anymore. But, you know, and, and you know when you're not feeling great, I went to a yoga class midweek and there was nothing worse when you're starting to feel a bit blocked up. You're sort of half upside down mm. doing downward dog. And so that's why you didn't see me on the mat on Saturday. I just thought I cannot, I cannot do this. Any, you just feel devoid of energy. Mm, anyway, there well, we are. Well, Boring, spe- grumpy. Speedy, speedy recovery. Um, Caro, uh, Describe, um, we're on to six quick questions and I want you to describe the social blunder that took place at the Dreamtime game function on Saturday night. Well, it involved Auntie Joy and it was just really unfortunate. Um, Most people, if you were watching the television coverage of the Dreamtime game, saw her in the middle of the ground do a wonderful welcome to country. We should point out she's one of our treasured Wurundjeri elders, tribal elders. Yes, and does a lot of stuff at AFL functions and her niece sang so beautifully She's fabulous. at the Dreamtime function. Anyway, but she made a comment about where is everyone? Where are the commissioners? Where's Gil? Why aren't they here at the game? Now, because it was an Essendon home game, a lot of 
um, people who were involved in the official function were completing the long walk. The long walk had been delayed because Fed Square seemed to be double booked. I mean, pretty extraordinary for some other, for a religious function. But Auntie Joy looked at the head table. She couldn't see a commissioner. She couldn't see Gillan McLaughlin, who, you know, it's sort of complicated. He's stepping down. Andrew Dillon stepped up. Gillan McLaughlin, I think, was at a mate's 50th. Andrew Dillon was down on the ground seeing off um, Richard Miles, the Deputy Prime Minister. They'd done the long walk together and Richard Miles had an early start, so wasn't attending the function. I think there were a couple of commissioners at the function. They weren't on the head table it was just quite sad and it was a pity. She felt, I think, embarrassed but then doubled down later. But it was quite sad to see her embarrassed in that way. I just, I think probably someone at Essendon should have given her the heads up as to mm. why certain people weren't there. Anyway, it was, a, look, it's not the headline from what was an unbelievable night of footy, an absolutely thrilling game and not a great game but a thrilling finish and fantastic for Essendon. And just, you know, Michael Long singing, Kevin Cheedy probably oh, didn't need him, but that was pretty funny. <laughs> and the players' performance, as always, was just brilliant. Corrie, what alarms you about Donald Trump Jr.'s scheduled de- July speaking tour of Australia? Can you believe? Did you know he was doing a speaking? I actually didn't. I'm <laughs> reading this and going, whoa. Whoa. Look, I have no issue with Donald Trump Jr. visiting Australia, the eldest son of the f- former president. Um, I embrace the idea of speakers from all sides of politics, having their freedom to express their views. (coughs) But, Caro, those views have to be based on a foundation of fact and truth. And consistently, over the four years while his father was president, and then afterwards, he supported the conspiracy theories, one after the other after the other, relating to the 2020 presidential election result. Donald Trump Jr. tells lies. And I just can't abide it. And I can't cope with an organisation called Turning Point Australia, which is a non-profit organisation with a mission, quote, to identify, educate, train and organise a community movement to promote the principles of freedom, free markets and limited government, close quote. Turning Point Australia are selling tickets. They start at $89 and people, if they want a VIP meet and greet package with Donald Trump Jr., or a backstage pass, which is $495, which allows the people to enjoy a champagne with Mr. Trump Jr. after the show. Everybody has to be very clear that Donald Trump Jr., it won't be a a warm and fuzzy town hall meeting. This will be a preaching. This is a a man who has been pushing disinformation about Joe Biden's win in 2020, about COVID-19 and vaccinations. He has campaigned on college campuses around America about gun control and what should be done um, and and school and he's mocked victims of school massacres he's mocked covid and he's cooperated with the Russians in their interference in the 2016 US election so that's why I'm a little concerned about Donald Trump Jr. coming to Australia, Caro. Now, I think that's a lot more um, legitimate reason, something to be grumpy about than a cold. <laughs> um, what Australian sporting reality shocked you this week? I did not realise, and I should have realised this, that the Socceroos have no home. That these, that wonderful group of people and the women who are about to host um, the Women's World Cup here in Australia, that's going to be an eye-opener, they... Um, they don't have a training base 
And if you remember, you know, they were real homecoming heroes last year after the World Cup and they did so much better than everyone expected. Graham Arnold, I was with on Offsiders on Sunday. He was, um, I found out they pay $1,500 a session to train at Leichhardt oh. at a soccer pitch. When he gets these big international stars back who play for some of the big European teams, etc. They they live in they're based in a hotel. They have to do their own ice baths in their hotel rooms. They have no home. I can't believe Soccer Australia is clearly not doing their job. They should be pushing the Australian government. I mean, two hundred and thirty million has been dedicated by the federal government to this new stadium in Hobart. Brilliant. Well, I was no, about to say, can't we put something down there? I well, they need a training base. Whether it is in, I think Sydney is probably the place, but it's not good enough. And um, I was really shocked by that. Corey, which two kings of the screen are you excited to see playing actual kings? Johnny Depp as Louis XV and Jude Law as Henry VIII. Have you heard about these two films? Well, you would have heard about the... the, the I've um, heard about Johnny Depp. Yeah. I so wasn't aware of Jude Law. No, so Johnny Depp, who is, I'll just remind people, 59, he is appearing or he, he, he appeared in... At the film premiere, it premiered at Cannes last week, Caro, Jean du Barry, which is based on um, the mistress, long-time mistress of King Louis XV, and Johnny Depp plays King Louis XV. More interesting for me, though, is Jude Law taking on not a young, vibrant, charismatic, handsome Henry VIII, who first married Catherine of Aragon, but the overweight, gout-ridden, angry... Uh, sexual monster that was Henry VIII in his last years married to Catherine Parr. And this movie sounds really interesting. It's called Firebrand. It centres on the life of Catherine Parr, who's played by Alicia Vikander in the movie. And Jude Law plays her boorish, loud, terrible, misogynist husband. And it's a bit of a power struggle between the two because um, Edward VI, who is Henry's um, heir is young and uh, still a child and Henry VIII has to go off to battle and he appoints Catherine Parr the protector and with that comes a lot of power. So I can't wait to see that. I have seen one image that Vanity Fair has released of Jude Law and can I tell you, the handsome man has disappeared. <laughs> I don't well, know where he is under all that prosthetics. but Oh, and Alicia Villander is a great actress. I look forward to that. Oh, well, I think there'll be two great movies, Caro. What is your best and worst memory of British writer Martin Amos who died on the weekend? Oh, well, the be- the two best, one of them is the Rachel Papers, one of a very funny and a very clever book. Money was great too, but I really loved the I Rachel Papers. I love the Papers. Rachel Papers. Because isn't and it about a, a young boy who has an affair with a woman called Rachel? Is yes. that what it's about? Yeah. Well, an obsession. Uh, not really. a young boy. I mean, he's an older teenager. An obsession with someone called Rachel and what happens. Um, sort of really in the in the sort of same sort of vernacular as some of Kingsley Amos's work too. Um, I also remember his incredible stand on behalf of Salman Rushdie and what he did for his friend and what he wrote about his friend and what Salman Rushdie went through, you know, in the whole, during the whole sort of fatwa era. The worst was I remember I was living in London and Martin Amos was one of the bright young things of British literature, probably still great friends with, um, oh, who's our favourite author? who was his great friend, Ian McEwen, Ian McEwen before their famous falling out. And um, Time Out went and did an interview with him and he treated the Time Out journalist 
so appallingly. He said to the journalist, well, I think we should have a bottle of wine. Would you like a glass of wine? And um, the journalist said, oh, okay. And Martin said, well, you know, the off-licence is round the corner <laughs> and sent him off to buy the wine. You know when you just remember an interview? because And, and clearly the journalist went to town on what an arrogant so-and-so Martin Amos was and how arrogant and conceited he was at the time. But, look, he went on. I think he died in Florida, didn't he? Mm. Ended up, um, well, ended up living mm, yeah, over there. Yeah, esophageal cancer. Yeah, died of a terrible, terrible illness and um, was just at the time that I remember that article, just a pretty horrible person or a pretty conceited person, but he left behind a great legacy of books. Well, that um, is a nice segue, actually, to my amazing fact. Um, And I thought uh, I would bounce off your Martin Amos uh, recollection. Do you remember Granter's 20 Best of Young British Novelists for 1983? I, Do you remember that? I so, Gra- so Granta is uh, a, a British literary magazine, Caro, and every 10 years it declares who are the 10 or 20 or 15. It's never the same number, but who are the young British novelists? It's a pretty compelling and amazing li- list, and it started just as a bit of a PR stunt by Granta magazine to get a few extra readers, and the thing has really taken off. And I think partly because the first year the Young British Novelists of 1983. Let me tell you who is among them. I won't go through the whole list of 20, but these, this is who they identified in 1983. William Boyd, Julian Barnes, Pat Barker, uh, A.N. Wilson, Ian McEwan, Martin Amos, Shiva Naipaul, Kazuo Ishiguro, Graham Swift, Rose Tremaine, and Lisa St. Auburn de Turan are some of them. What a list, eh? Wow. What a list. That was a good call. So it's um, Bill Burford, who was the Granter editor at the time between 1979 and 1995, in a 20-year memorial piece in The Guardian 10 years ago, he was uh, talking about um, this idea of the best of of young British novelists. And for years, Bill was lauded for this extraordinary idea that he had and how important it was to British literature and the publishing industry. And in this piece, he said, um, I had actually nothing to do with it. The idea was dreamed up by a marketing guy, Desmond Clark, and it was an idea that he had one night during uh, during a steamy evening bath. <laughs> and and he said, the selection of those 20 young novelists, he said, that wasn't my doing either. That had been done by a panel also of Mr. Clark's devising. And it included um, Beryl Bain- Bain- Bainbridge, who I love, a novelist, and biographer Richard Hol- uh, Michael Holroyd, and a couple of other publishing people. And um, and the next time they, when they awarded it, um, A.S. Byatt had started writing in her forties, and she not she didn't beg; those are my words, but she did suggest, could we take the the, the age up to forty five? But no, it had to be before they turned forty. So I aspired, missed out. But isn't that a crackerjack list? It is an amazing list. And at the time, I'd love to know what those writers had actually written by then. Well, um, When Did Money Come Out by Martin Amos? That was about 1983 or, or maybe it was a bit later. I th- no, that was later. I think Rachel Papers was earlier, wasn't it? And I think that um, Ian McEwen would have written that one about the guy in um, Germany during the Cold War. Amsterdam? And- no, no, even even earlier than that. Oh, look, it, that's really it's really interesting. interesting. In nineteen ninety three, that was also an interesting year. Louis de Benier of um, 
um, Captain Corelli's mandolin fame, Esther Freud, Alan Hollinghurst, who you and I adore, Hanif Qureshi, Ben Okri, Will Self, Nicholas Shakespeare, who you're a bit of a fan of. And then the most recent one, 2013, uh, included Camilla Shamsi, who we love, Evie Wilde, who is um, uh, also has an Australian passport, love her, and Naomi Alderman. Anyway, it's a very interesting thing to have a look at and, and how far they all came. What an interesting discussion it's been today, Corrie. Hey, it's been very diverse, Carol. I'm exhausted. I don't know about you. Um, thank you, everybody, of course, for I'm listening. I'm going home for a steamy bath. <laughs> I think that's, that sounds just We're a ticket. We're going to stick you in a steamy bath. Jane and I are not having a steamy bath. We're not certainly not having one with you because you're probably infected the studio. Jane is looking very concerned now, <laughs> sniffing. Um, but, no, we love you, Karen, no matter what shape you're in health-wise. Um, Miss Jane, thank you very much for today, um, for particularly for um, the juggle that's been going on with people left, right and centre and um, coming in and out of the studio today. And Caro, it's been lovely seeing you and I hope you feel better, my friend. What do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Thanks for listening to this episode of Don't Shoot the Messenger. And if you'd like to support the podcast, tell a friend about the show. Perhaps they haven't discovered it yet. You can send us an email to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook using the handle at don'tshootpod and sign up for our weekly email. We'll send you the show notes straight to your inbox. And of course, thanks to our show sponsors, Red Energy and Prince Wine Store. <laughs>